Hello, and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Laura Friedman. I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Today is August 11th, 2021, and it is my pleasure to have with me today my dear friend and colleague, Dror Etkes. Dror is one, thanks, Dror, hi. Dror is one of the preeminent experts on Israeli settlement and is founder of the Israeli settlement watchdog group Kerem Navot, or as it is known in English, Naboth Vineyard. You can follow Dror's work in Hebrew um, at, uh, let's see, on Twitter at, at Dror underscore Etkes, E-T-K-E-S, and also at and K-N-A-V-O-T, and in English, that's in Hebrew, sorry, and in English at um, Naboth Vin, and at ampersand N-A-B-O-T-H-V-I-N. You can also follow his work online at karamnavot.org and on Facebook, um, look up Karamnavot English, you'll find it. So, Dror, thank you so much for being with me today. Um, I want to talk about a number of stories that you have featured, um, but before we start, I want you just to take a couple of minutes and, I mean, I've known you for going on 20 years at this point, um, but our, our listeners have not. So can you take a couple of minutes to introduce yourself and your work and the organization that you founded? Um, you shouldn't have said uh, 20 years. People might assume it we're older than 20 years old, you know, so. Yes, so, we, we, started, we started working on your children. <laughs> yep. Um, I've been uh, dealing with this issue with uh, Israeli West Bank uh, land policy issues for almost 20 years now. I did it under different, uh, under different umbrellas. Uh, the main one, the one which I started with is Peace Now. This is uh, where I, uh, well, where I had my first five and a half four, formative uh, years in the West Bank, learning what is what more or less, and where is, who is who, uh, and uh, this is also when I got to know you, I think. And yeah, yes. since then I left this now. Um, what that already fourteen years ago. And since then, I've been uh, working in different with different Israeli uh, political and human rights uh, organizations. Um, the common denominator of them, of all of them, is that they don't like what Israel is doing in the West Bank in terms of taking land from Palestinians and giving it to Israeli citizens. In other words, settlers. And I still don't like it, even though 20 years had passed since I started to deal with it. And I guess that this is what we're going to talk about today, right? Yes, um, that's exactly what we're going to talk about. So let, let's get down to business. So one of the really awesome things that you do, and something that really nobody else does, um, you not only know a ton about this, you're on the ground all the time monitoring and talking to people, but you publish these amazing fact capsule backgrounders on settlement-related developments. Um, you post them as threads on Twitter, and you post, post them on Facebook. I can't really recommend these highly enough in terms of the historical background they provide, aerial photos, really the facts to understand things that are happening right now. So what I was hoping we could do on this call today is, um, is look at some of those things you profiled. I have two specific cases in mind and then a third, which is one that is literally in the news right now. So we'll end with that one because that's the sexiest. So that's what will keep people hanging around. So let's start off with one that our listeners have probably not heard about, which is a case called Havat Magnesi. So can you tell us the story of Havat Magnesi? Yeah, uh, it's Magenzi, actually. This is oh, his last name. I'm so Magenzi. sorry, Magenzi. I wrote it wrong, and I'm saying it wrong over and over. My apologies. Magenzi. Right, Magenzi. Magenzi Farm. Havat in Hebrew means uh, farm in English. Um, the Magenzi farm is one of, out of the about 40, 40 something outposts which have been erected, established in the last um, three, four, five years uh, as, um, as agricultural farms. Most of them are established as, far, as, uh, grazing, uh, as grazing farms. In other words, uh, they have uh, sheep, a herd of sheep or goats. And uh, the, the settlers are taking these herds outside, out of the, out of the outposts around. And the idea um, behind this herding activity is to take very quickly and very, very aggressively, violently, a lot, a lot of land. What is a lot of land? 
such an outpost can take, in a matter of a few months, it can take over three, 4,000 dunams, which is a lot. I don't know what it is exactly in acres, but uh, um, dunam is 1,000 square meters. So multiply it by 1,000, that means that this is a very, very big area. Um, Magenzi Farm is actually an exceptional outpost in the sense that it was established in one of these uh, parts of the West Bank where we haven't seen similar type of settlers and outposts before. Uh, these outposts are established typically by hardcore, most of them religious or somehow religious or flirting with religion fundamentalist religion or fundamentalist interpretation of religion, uh, uh, settlers who are um, involved in most of the cases, I would say, of uh, attacks, violent attacks, sometimes very, very violent attacks against Palestinians in the West Bank. Uh, and uh, this outpost had been established uh, about five, six kilometers east of the Green Line next to a secular settlement, a middle-class, secular, boring, non-ideological settlement, which was established in the early 1980s, west of Amalla, as I said, about five, six kilometers away from the Green Line. Uh, the settlement uh, name is Nili, N-I-L-I. -I, yeah? And it's really not one of these outpo not, not one of these settlements where you would expect to see such an outpost. These outposts typically are established in the heart of the West Bank, the upper, uh, in terms of topography, the elevated part of the West Bank, along Route 60, the route, the main route, which connects the main towns of the West Bank from Jenin in the north, all the way to the Yatta, Hebron Yatta area in the south. And this is where most of the Palestinian population is living. And this is also where the hardest core settlers are residing and the uh, settlements which were established east and west, not too far away from this main route in, of the West Bank. So as I said, Nili is another story. Nili is a settlement which was established by Bilikut, uh, by Bilikut government in the early 1980s. Uh, it's a settlement which uh, hosts mainly um, secular or non-religious, in some cases traditional, but not religious uh, population of settlers. And we haven't seen outposts, outposts next to this type of, of, uh, of settlements. Outposts, typically saying, is a phenomena which uh, can be related with the more uh, ideological slash religious slash fundamentalist uh, sectors of Israeli settlers in the West Bank which is about, very about one third of the total population of Israeli settlement, perhaps even less, one quarter, between one quarter and one, one third of the total Israeli um, uh, settlers population in West Bank. And when I say right now West Bank, I should say that I'm not counting right now the East Jerusalem settlers, okay? So we're talking about more or less four, five, 450, 60, 70,000 settlers uh, which are residing in the West Bank outside of the so-called the jurisdictional area of uh, Jerusalem, which was created by Israel right after 1967. So, um, can, I ask, can I ask you, I'm sorry, I meant to interrupt. You talk about the settlers taking a huge amount of land <clears throat> with this outpost. And by the way, a dunam is about a quarter of an acre. So it's, it's still, it's a large amount of land, even in acres. Um, can you talk about the status of the land and how it is they take it, whether it is legal or illegal, even under Israeli law, and how they're allowed to keep it. Yeah, so this was one, one of the questions which we were, which we were really wondering about, um, and I will explain why. Um, one of the darkest aspects of the Israeli settlement uh, story in the West Bank is the question of land allocations. When I say land allocations, I mean the land which had been officially allocated to different settlers or different settler, settlers entities, yeah, in the West Bank by the Israeli authorities. So when I say by the Israeli authorities, of course, I mean the Israeli military because the West Bank is not part of the state of Israel. And, if, and everything is being managed and run by, and run by, the, Israeli, by the Israeli military. 
Uh, and the Israeli military has a special unit or a special arm which specializes in running the civilian affairs in the language called the civil administration, the ICA, the Israeli civil administration. The Israeli civil administration is basically the government of Area C. They are running everything. You want to have a water pipe, you have to get permission from the government, right? The government is the ICA. You want to have electricity, you have to get permission from the government, right? So the, Israeli, the government in, in Area C of the West Bank, 61% in parentheses, I would say, I should say 61% of the West Bank is again the uh, ICA. And if you want to have land in the West Bank, so what do you do? You go to the government, right? Again, the government is the ICA. So one of the uh, less known or the more obscure uh, aspects of the, of the Israeli uh, summit story is exactly the story of allocations. Why? Because the Israeli authorities, the ICA, had allocated hundreds, literally hundreds of thousands of dunams, huge amount of so-called state land. Yeah. Uh, if, you, if you want, we can go later on and explain what exactly state land in the West Bank means. But they had allocated huge amount of land to the settlement division. The settlement division of the WZO, the World Zionist Organization, which, be, which is a half governmental, half kind of a Jewish collective arm which is supposed to promote the so-called collective Jewish interests in the land of Israel. And when I say the land of Israel, I include here also the West Bank. So the Summer Division is actually the main subcontractor of Israeli government, yeah, in terms of promoting settlements and promoting uh, also land grab in the West Bank. The Salmon, the Salmon Division had been involved in literally, I would be modest, I would say many, many hundreds, but probably we're talking about thousands of cases of land grab in the West Bank. And when I say land grab now, I'm not even talking about the official land grab, which is done by the Israeli government. I'm talking about many, many, many cases of land grab, which had been done de facto by Israeli, by Israeli authorities and by Israeli settlers with the support of Israeli authorities and with the involvement of the Salmon Division. So the Salmon Division, the problem with the Salmon Division is that there is an extra law which made sure that the Salmon Division won't be subjected to the so-called Freedom of Information Act in Israel. Freedom of Information Act is a very liberal and very democratic and very important act which had been legislated in Israel in 1987, if I, correct, if I remember correctly, or 1998. And this act allowed every Israeli citizen, and I happen to be an Israeli citizen, uh, and, and enables me or gives me the legal tool to demand information from my government, um, which is relevant to the last seven years. Whatever happened had been done. Well, of course, there are many exceptions to this law and to this, but generally speaking, you know, the, the, the basic assumption of this act and this act exists also in the United States, is that the information belongs to all of us, to the citizens, not to, not to the states or not to the people who work for the state. It belongs to the people who the state is supposed to serve. We happen to be the citizen with the, the state is supposed to, to serve. So as I said, this act is valid to all Israeli and governmental agencies, almost, almost. Of course, doesn't include the military, doesn't include the intelligence bodies. Yeah, but this is also something which 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 is which is true regarding other countries in the world. Now, not only Israel, but in Israel we have another another organ, state organ or a half state organ, which is not uh, subjected to this law. And this is the WCO, the Summon Division. Okay. And the reason that the Summon Division is not subjected to this law is because the settlers didn't want that the um, bodies and the people who do not like the Israeli settlement policy in the West Bank would be able to get information regarding what the WZO does actually with the land, how much land they give whom. Okay, so the WZO is uh, subjected to the law in terms of how much money they spend, but no one really cares about money. The, re the real interesting question is land, you know, how much land uh, is allocated, whether land is allocated. So this long story, this long introduction is, uh, uh, is coming in order to, uh, uh, to explain that until recently, we, re we didn't really know 
how much land had been allocated to these uh, outposts. But uh, lately, Peace Now had been able to receive a document, a very interesting document from the Ministry of Agriculture. And, for, um, and uh, in this document, we learned from the first time, for the first time that the Ministry of Agriculture is supporting, if I remember correctly, six different outposts which had received officially land allocations from the WZO or from the ICA via the WZO Summit Division. Okay, so that was the first time, it was the first breakthrough that gave us an idea how much land, uh, how many outposts, I'm sorry, had been uh, granted or how many, yeah, had been given uh, land in, in, in the West Bank. So apparently out of this 40 something uh, outpost which had been mushroomed in the last uh, four or five years, this herding outpost, apparently, at least this is what we know for now, only six of them had been officially allocated uh, land. McGenzie Farm is not one of them. It's not one of them. And you shouldn't be, it shouldn't be surprised because when you look at where McGenzie Farm is and uh, our listener can look at our uh, uh, the map which which we uh, published in the post which we posted about this uh, farm I think about two weeks ago. You can see that uh, the land which uh, Neely the summit of Neely has altogether is pretty modest in terms of Israeli summit was bank. Neely doesn't have a lot of land. Why? Because it doesn't really need also a lot of land. Okay? It's not an agricultural summit. It's, uh, it's uh, some kind of a bedroom community. Okay, so they have land and we didn't use all the land which they have, which they have, they still have, they, they use about perhaps about 50% of the land which was officially allocated to them. But the outpost itself is situated in the very, very, very far Southwestern corner of the jurisdictional area the official jurisdictional area of this settlement. In other words, there's no way that they can take their, their goats and sheep you know, to herd within the area of the settlement because the outpost is located actually in the very edge of this area and there is a main road between the outpost and the settlement. In other words, the outpost had been located to begin with, with the assumption that the exception, that the expansion, expansion, I'm oh, sorry, of the outpost would be outside of this jurisdictional area of the settlement, and also, and this is important, also outside of an area which ever been officially grabbed by the Israeli authorities in this in this part of the West Bank. In other words, they had been located, they chose a location which allowed them, which forces them, I would say, if they want to expand, to take over land, which officially, according to the Israeli military law, which is valid in the West Bank, they cannot take, because the land hadn't, hadn't been officially taken by the Israeli authorities before, and therefore, the Israeli authorities could not allocate the land to any third party. So, okay. so, so in a nutshell, if I can boil it down, tell me if I'm correct. What you're saying is you've got the land in the West Bank. A huge percentage of it has already been taken by Israel and allocated largely to settlements, whether it's state land or they take it for military purposes, whatever. And then there's the portion that hasn't yet been allocated to settlers because it hasn't been deemed state land. And that's the land that's being targeted by these agricultural outposts. In effect, we're going to create a feta complete on the ground, and that will compel or incentivize the Israeli government to now find a way to declare it state land so that after the fact, what we do can be declared legal. Is that correct? Exactly, exactly. So this outpost, which was established about two years ago, is now expanding. Now guess in which direction it's, an ex it's expanding. It's not expanding in the direction of a road because there's a road and you're not going to take your herd into a main road, right? Where is it expanding to? It's expanding toward the west, toward an area, an open area, which is between 
two Palestinian villages. Yeah. And when I say expense, I mean basically a dirt road which had been carved about three weeks ago. Yeah, in the mountains. About what I've seen it was about one kilometer west from the existing outpost. Okay, now this is a clear classic settlers initiative. This is how it starts. In order to establish a sub-outpost, or if you want to have a daughter outpost or a sister outpost, or an extension of an outpost, you need, first of all, a road. Otherwise, you're not going to get there, right? So what we have seen is that they have done the first, the first step. And the first step is to carve a road forward to the west. And this road will also create the division, the physical division between these two Palestinian communities. And this is the whole idea about the settlement, the settlement enterprise in the West Bank. We have to remember the settlers in the West Bank are relatively speaking small minority. Today, we're talking about 15% of the population, 16% of the population, 17% of the population after 50 something, after 50, what, four years of settlement efforts, right? So there's no way that Israel is, not, is going to win this race uh, demographically. The way they are um, trying to win this race yeah, is by marginalizing geographically the Palestinians. And if you want to do it effectively, you want to take as much as possible of land. So these uh, dozens of outputs, uh, which we uh, have seen uh, mushrooming in the last years, are actually doing exactly this this type of work. They're continuing where, where uh, you know they can. They are the next step. They are the next generation of outposts, and they're doing exactly what the first and the second generation of outposts was doing. You know, this is already the third generation of outposts. Just to put things in context, perhaps you know, the first generation of outposts had been had been established in the second half of the nineties as a reaction to the Oslo. Okay. So this is this is a take take the hilltops. This is the Sharon quote, the Ariel Sharon quote. You know, when he was the Minister of Foreign Affairs of Netanyahu's first first government, take the hilltops. Okay, so this is the first this is the first generation of outposts. About fifty outposts had been established in this in the first wave. The second wave of outposts uh, is between two thousand one and two thousand three, the bloodiest years of the Second Intifada. When Israel was uh, was uh, oppressing the second Palestinian Intifada, uh, um, settlers took advantage very very well of this of these years and established another more or less fifty different outposts. Uh, and uh, the outposts which we are looking at and we're seeing being established in the last years are actually the third generation of outposts, and most of them, not all of them, but most of them are. Indeed, herding outposts, outposts which are based on very, very, very few uh, uh, settlers, each one of them. Very, very few. We're talking about, in some places, five, six, seven, eight, ten settlers, right? Uh, but they are very, very well organized. They're very, very well equipped. And, of course, needless to say, they are very, very strongly backed up by the Israeli military. None of these things could have happened without, um, I would say, 24-7 support of the Israeli, of Israeli military. And indeed, also in this outpost, in Magenti outpost, there are, such, there are soldiers which are uh, present there or very, very close in the area 24-7. So every sm the smallest problem which Mr. Magenti will have with Palestinians in a matter of a few minutes, maximum, soldiers would be there. So just, just a couple of points. I want to just hit that last one so people hear it really clearly. What you're effectively saying is that you have settlers engaged in activities that under Israeli law are unauthorized and illegal. And the role of the IDF is to come in and normalize it and validate it by providing them 24-7 security at Israeli taxpayer expense. I think that's an important point. Um, just two observations, interesting listening to you. I, I find myself thinking of the situation in East Jerusalem and the, the use of archaeology in national parks, which achieves sort of the same thing. There's never been a mass movement of Israelis into the settlements in the heart of East Jerusalem. And that was the tactic for years, taking over houses, you know, individual houses, you know, bit by bit. At some point, there was a sort of a shift to this broader 
approach, which said we can take over whole neighborhoods by using archaeology and, and tourism projects and have the whole area declared under our control. We saw this at Elad and, and projects that are ongoing there. The other thing that's striking listening to you talk about the herding communities, I think probably a lot of people listening to this are watching the stories like Han al-Ahmar or the, the recent demolition of another um, Bedouin encampment in the Jordan Valley. You know, for years, there's been this argument that Israelis have made, Israeli authorities about Bedouin, whether you're talking about the Negev or in the West Bank, and somehow delegitimizing the very idea of herding communities, right? They take too much land, it's not efficient, it's not modern. It's quite striking that while Israel is actively targeting uh, Bedouin herding communities in both the Negev and the West Bank and trying to force them into sort of Bantustan ghettos where they will be settled permanently, um, there is the appropriation of the same tactic of herding as a means specifically of taking Palestinian land in the West Bank. That's just a couple of observations. This um, is true. By the, way, by the way, the idea of herding is not a new idea. This is something which we, we, we see documents from the early 1970s and 1980s where land, uh, land had been allocated to herding. The thing is that it's never really kind of, uh, it's never, it, it's never really uh, um, on. a common, a common, uh, a common phenomenon until, until recently, until the last, until this decade, I would say, okay, we started, it started to, to become more and more common uh, um, up from the 90s, but the real, the real uh, um, jump is really the story over the last four, three, four, five years. Yeah, we, we, we would say that it, it started to catch on. It's like the settlers figured out that it would be a valuable tactic. Right. But I mean, the side-by-side -side optic of, you know, speeches out by Khan al-Akmar basically saying we have to take this town, this Bedouin town down because they're taking up too much land. It's not legitimate how they're using the land. And then, I mean, it, it's quite striking. Um, so for the sake of time, I want to actually fast forward to the story that's in the news today. And this is a saga that is in the Israeli press. I don't think it's really hit the international press because, you know, nothing like this really does. But this is the saga of an outpost known as um, Kida, and arguably its most um, famous or most important resident, who's a guy named Yair Hirsch. And I know that you have been on the story for years. So I'm going to ask you to summarize it. And then we'll dig in a little bit more for, for why, what this says, what the story tells, tells the world about Israel, not just the settlers, but about Israel's ideas in the West Bank and towards settlers. Okay, so just very briefly, a bit, a bit of a context. We spoke before about the second generation of outposts. So the outpost of Kidah was established uh, about three and a half kilometers east of the summit of Shiloh one of these really, really hardcore, aggressive settlements in the, in the heart of West Bank, right? And Kidai is actually the last outpost, which was established in the second, in the second wave of outposts. It was established in 2003, and it ended basically the second wave of, uh, of outposts established between 2001 and 2003 in the bloodiest, as I said before, in the bloodiest years of the second, of the second Intifada. And it was established by young, uh, ultra-nationalist, fundamentalist, uh, religious settlers. Um, most of them, I dare to say, I dare to guess, I don't know them personally, most of them, but I think that most of them are already second generation settlers, okay? people who grew up or were even born in Salman, uh, people who are today in their mid-40s, I, I guess. Okay, so back then they were in their mid-late 20s. And uh, this outpost uh, was established as any other outpost, or first of all, without any permission. In other words, they took land which does not belong to them. Um, they built houses without any permits. Specifically, Kidah was established on, in an area which was established, which was uh, declared as state land by the Israeli authorities in 1991. But, and there is a huge but here. The huge but is that the borders of the state land declaration never been accurately mapped by the 
Israeli authorities. Okay, so there is a declaration, which was in most cases done in the 1980s or in the early 1990s, but then there are no clear border of what was declared in state land or what was included within the declaration of state land. Yeah, assuming that only non-cultivated land can be can be uh, included within such a declaration. And a cultivated land, farming cultivated land, is acknowledged by the Israeli authorities as privately owned by the people who cultivate it. Okay, that's very, very generally, very generally the idea of the so-called state land declaration. You take the land which is not cultivated or not cultivated enough, according to the definition which the Israeli authorities invented, the 50%, the 50%, you know, uh, cultivation, you know, uh, uh, criteria, um, and everything which is less than 50% cultivated is state land unless it's registered in the tabu as privately owned by Palestinians. So this area... Just to, I think it's worth just mentioning here that the fact that it's named that Israel as an occupier has a right to recognize state land, but under international law, it should be using it as an obligation to use that state land for the benefit and to meet the needs of the indigenous population, which the Israeli government has read to mean settlers almost exclusively since That's 1967. True. So just to be clear, the state land, taking the state land does not suggest that this is legitimate or it's legitimate to use this way, but you're describing the way the Israeli process deals with it. So sorry, go on. Right. This, is a very, this is a very, very important comment because less than a percent of the state land in the West Bank had been officially allocated to Palestinian needs in Area C. So that tells us the story of a state land. State land, in other words, is land which is allocated automatically only for Israeli settlers. Okay, and this is important to remember. So we go back to the Kidah. So the uh, the borders of the so-called uh, declaration of state land from 1991 haven't been haven't been decided by the settler administration. But that was not a problem for the settlers of Kidah. They just took over the entire the entire the entire land, the entire mountain there. Uh, and by the way, a huge part of this mountain, which we took, was actually very well cultivated until the end of the 1990s. Yeah, aerial photos uh, and uh, something which we can, I can send you and you can post to our listeners. Yeah, aerial photos uh, are clearly indicating that most of the area which had been taken by the settlers and had been built on was very, very, very well cultivated. Uh, before uh, before the Second Intifada, before be- until the eruption of the Second Intifada in, in the end of uh, two of the year two thousand. So um, one of the residents, indeed, of this outpost is yeah here here she here she is a very active settler, a very ideologically ideologically motivated settler. Uh, in the past, he was the um, he was a manager. He ran actually a company, uh, which is probably um, the biggest land grabber, private land grabber in the West Bank. I'm talking about Meshekachia. Meshekachia is a company which was established in 2003 in the settlement of Shiloh by three young uh, settlers, all of them all of them second generation settlers, uh, and they. Um, they basically took over a business, a small business, which was established a few years before uh, by another uh, settler family in a neighboring outpost called Achia. Yeah. But they had upgraded it, upgraded very, very, very significantly. And when I said upgraded very, very significantly, I'm talking about hundreds, and I'm saying it again, hundreds of dunams, very, very, very uh, well-cultivated agricultural land, which belonged to Palestinians, from two communities, two Palestinian communities, mainly two Palestinian communities, Jalud and Karyut. Both of them are uh, northeast of the summit of Shiloh. They took hundreds of dunams, uh, which were cultivated until the late 1990s, and Palestinians were deported from them during the first years of Intifada. And um, around 2007, 2008, they started systematically to plant um, olive and grapeyards. Olive, olive groves and, and, and graveyards on these hundreds of dunams. And um, 
they established a business. They established a business. Uh, they had uh, very rich investors, which injected a lot, a lot, a lot of money into the business. Yeah, uh, people who are very, very strongly uh, identifying with ideologically with the idea of, uh, of settling Jews in the West Bank. But these are also people who understand how to make money. They want to. They wanted to see. They wanted to see fruits to their investment. They invested a lot of millions in this business, and this, this business became very, very big business. And Mr. Yahir Hirsch was running this business for a few years. Yeah, he didn't have to drive drive too far away from home. I mean, this 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 graveyards this great this this and olive grove vineyards 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 I'm sorry this vineyards and and uh, and olive grove are just under his house. I mean, they are a few hundred meters. They're starting a few hundred meters from his from where he built his illegal house. But uh, after a few years, uh, uh, Mr. Hirsch uh, went to politics, and he became uh, he became an advisor, um, assistant of um, Mrs. Ayelet Shaked. Ayelet Shaked is a prominent uh, extreme right wing politician, a woman who um, who. Um, is a close partner of Israel's prime minister, present prime minister, Naftali Bennett. Uh, and Ayala Shaked uh, uh, is today uh, the minister of interior in Israel. She had been nominated in, as a minister of interior in the so-called the alternative government, which was established a few months ago. And, and actually previously she was the minister of justice. That's true. That's true. And once she was uh, nominated as the Minister of Interior, she chose Yair Hirsch to serve as a manager of a manager of a Minister of Interior of, of a Ministry of Interior. So, so by manager, is, you mean Director General, correct? The Director General. I'm sorry. He is the Director General of the Ministry of Interior. That means that he is he is number one, number two, if you want. If you wish, in the ministry, right? Now, just to remind our listener, this person had built his house, his built his house illegally, and he is the uh, person who is supposed today to run the ministry, which also deals with construction <laughs> in Israel. By the way, also in the West Bank. Okay, so we thought that the idea that a person who is an ideologically violator of a law, who who built over years uh, his house illegally, and knowing that his house is illegal, and knowing that he has a demolition order on his house, yeah, and he kept building it. We thought that the idea that this person will serve as the Director General of the Ministry of Interior is not a good idea. So first of all, what we've done, we published it. And the interesting thing is that once we published it, the the government or the commission was supposed to approve um, uh, the appointments of very senior appointees in the government, like Mr. Hirsch, yeah, they were they were forced to ask him what is the story, yeah. So the answer which he gave him was very very funny. The, 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 the answer which he gave him was yes that he received a stop working order on his house, but it was not a demolition order. You understand? It was a stop working order, but it was not a demolition. So the committee decided to approve the appointment of Mr. Hirsch to the Director General because of a Mr. of a Minister of Interior because he, the order which he received was only stop working order and not a demolition order. But the true thing, the truth of the matter is that of course it's a demolition order. Of course he received a demolition order. Well, the, I mean, to some extent, of, I, I say it, like listening to the story, whether it was a demolition order or a stop work order. He's not, there's no question he knew he's constructing a house on land where he did not have the permits and that technically it's illegal. I mean, whether he thinks, whether he, whatever the argument is, what's, what's extraordinary to me is that 
that's what it boils down to. This is, you know, whether you call it, you know, an apple or an orange, you're clearly admitting it's fruit. So can we just deal there, there with two, There are two different things? aspects here, and there are two different aspects. First of all, taking gland, which is not, which was never officially allocated to him. Yeah, never. Such a land cannot be allocated to him because the, the borders of a state land, of a so-called state land, are not clear. So once the, as long as the borders of a settlement, of, of a declaration, I'm sorry, uh, 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 are not clear, the land can be, cannot be allocated, of course, right? This is one. The second is, of course, the construction. But it's not only the construction, it's his own construction. He is living in a community of systematic law violator, okay? Everyone around there, and we're talking about 50, 60 families there today. Some of them had built mansions there, huge houses there. All of them, just imagine, all of them have demolition orders pending against them, which never been executed by the Israeli, by the Israeli authorities, as most of the demolition orders in the West Bank. Even as demolition orders against Palestinians are executed regularly when the, the, they've built on their own land, which Israel recognizes their own land, right. but Israel will give them permits to build on their own land. Dror, can you talk about the attorney general's ruling? Because for me, that was the most, the most interesting part, because the attorney general is supposed to be sort of the last word on rule of law, Israel, democracy, rule of law. And, and that ruling for me, which I hope you'll describe as, and we'll close with this, for me, it sums up the difference between rule of law, where you have rules that exist to protect everyone's rights and maintain you know, the rights of it, versus rule by law, where the authorities basically interpret and write laws to do what they want to do and to promote right. the rights of those they want to promote. So can you talk about um, Mr. Mandelbitt? A nice, um, nice distinction. Yeah. I, didn't, I didn't think about it. Sorry, well, so 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 the, once once the Ministry of uh, of Justice, the, in other words, the Attorney General, it was uh, it was served with the proofs that uh, that was not a stop working order only. There, that there is only also a demolition order. By the way, the number of a demolition order is fifty eight of. 08, 2008, the number of the Malaysian order number 58 in the area of Ramallah, because this is where, this is the area where, where he lives uh, from the year 2008. This is the year where he started to construct his house. Again, I mean, the house was constructed over um, about six, seven years, step by step. So we're not, we're not talking about one event. We're talking about systematic, systematic, ideological, stubborn, proud, violation of the law, okay? So once the attorney general was served with a proof that there is indeed a demolition order pending against his house, he was forced to reopen the decision of the committee, which approved originally his appointment and to check it. And just a few days ago, we received via Alex's uh, 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 journal, a uh, newspaper, we received uh, uh, the attorney general reply, but he decided that even though there is some difficulty with it, he decided not to intervene and to approve Mr. Hirsch uh, uh, appointment to as the director general of Mr. Interior based also on the fact that he didn't know that there is a demolition order pending against his house, which is a huge lie. And the fact that his house is built on state land or land, I'm sorry, which is future to be defined as state land. This is, I'm trying to translate more or less accurately. So in effect, it's okay to grab land, use it illegally, because you can have confidence that the government will launder your act after the fact and make it legal. And therefore there's no illegality to worry about. It's, it's, it's okay. It's okay to grab land. It's okay to build house, even though that you have a stop working order, which had been converted to demolition order, and you and you continue to construct it over years, year after year, after, yeah, until you finish it. And it's okay. Also, I want to run to remind you. It's also to run okay to run a company, which its entire business plan is based on sheer land grab. Of private, of private, uh, uh, privately owned land, 
you know, again, we're talking about hundreds of dunams which have been grabbed from Palestinian individu individuals, which for generation used to, which were families for generation used to cultivate this land. Everything is okay in order to, in order to settle the, the land of Israel, Apparently, just about everything is okay, according to the Attorney General of the State of Israel. What, what, what's striking to me, and I, I think we need to close it here, the, the case, this particular case, which again, I know you've been following for years. I think a lot of Americans and probably a lot of people in the international community, when they hear about outposts and illegal acts by settlers, they think this is some marginal population a few bad apples or a few overzealous activists. I think it's really important. And, and Yaya Hirsch is a really good example um, for people to understand how mainstream this is within Israeli society today. The idea, as you say, that someone, even if there was no illegality at all with Kida, the idea that someone who has spent his life basically promoting Outpost, running a company that is devoted to land grab, is elevated to a senior, the number two position in a major ministry is extraordinary. The fact this that this is one person, of the most important ministries. This is one it, of the most important ministries. Exactly, exactly. And, and the idea that not only is it that is it okay within the Israeli body politic that he is a, a key figure in expanding settlements deep inside the West Bank, but he's also guilty personally of violating Israeli law to do it. And that right. has absolutely no consequence in terms of his mainstream acceptability. I think that's and, a really this powerful is, point. And this is the person who is going to be in charge of a ministry which is uh, uh, responsible over all Israeli municipalities Including and regional councils and local councils in the West Bank, in, in Israel and the West Bank. Yeah. Okay, this is going to be number two in the, in the ministry. Oh, this is Israel 2021. I mean, this is what Israel chose to be. And I think that Mr. Hirsch is a very, very authentic and genuine reflection of the Israeli, of the Israeli political culture today. I mean, to some extent, I, I think there's something refreshing about having it be out in the open. Um, what I call rule by law has existed for, you know, consistently pretty much since 1967 when it comes to how you manage situations in the occupied territories. If we don't have a law, Israel doesn't have a law to permit settlers to do what they want to do, you write one, right? If there isn't a law to prevent Palestinians from doing what you want to do, you make a declaration, a military declaration, or you pass a new law. Um, and now it's just that much more out in the open. But I think it's really important. And I think this, this anecdote, this story, is a powerful illustration of that. Yeah, I, I think if, if I may, another, another um, perhaps, you know, um, sentence about this phenomenon. People are sometimes surprised that there is so much law violation involved within the so-called Solomon Enterprise or what bank. But it makes totally, it makes totally sense, you know, because if, if you want to Judaize, and this is what Israel wants, in the, in the bottom line. Israel wants to Judaize area, which is inhabited, you know, for generations by millions of people, right? Now, if you want to effectively Judaize this area and to take as much as possible land in the shortest period as possible, it makes totally sense to violate the law in order to be more effective. Yeah. Why, to, why to work according to the book if you can work not according to a book and achieve more. And this is, this is in, the, in the bottom line, this is what we see. We see, you know, we, we see Hirschism of the Israeli, of Israeli, of Israeli system. You know, Hirsch is a good, authentic result of what Israel had been doing in the West Bank for the last 50 years. This is not something new. This is something exactly. which is exactly. characteristic to the Israeli summon enterprise in the West Bank from more or less day one. You want yeah. to violate the law in order, in order, also your own law. And this is the important thing, not only the international law, also your own law in order to take more land. And Mr. Hirsch is a product of this culture. And, oh, and, why, and should, then, why shouldn't he be you know, the, 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 the director general of the Ministry of Interior? And, and I think it's worth noting, successive Israeli governments, regardless of who is in charge, the left or the right, has normalized, has incentivized this kind of lawbreaking 
because Mm -hmm. over and over, settlers are not held to account and in fact are rewarded for breaking the law. So again, because you're right, you're right. But eventually it's important to remember that it's not the settler's story, the state of Israel. Exactly, I'm saying this is the state, it's, of, the state of Israel. It's a collective decision. It's a collective decision which we, the Israelis, have done once and again in the last 54 years. You know, as much as Mr. Hirsch had made his own decision, you know, to build illegally for, you know, in, during these uh, six, seven, eight years which he built his house, you know, we, the Israelis, yeah, we decided to build illegally, even according to our own law, in the last four, four, 55, 54 years. So why shouldn't Mr. Hirsch and people like him shouldn't adopt the same system for their own benefit, right? They're just doing right, what I, we're all doing. Yeah, I think you, I think you summed it up very, very well. I think we're going to have to stop here. I'd love to have you back again in the future to look at some more of these, these little capsule stories because I think they're incredible illustrations. I cannot recommend strongly enough following Dror and Karim Navot on Facebook, on Twitter, um, you, you can learn more reading one of their threads or one of their profiles and, and of these individual stories. You can learn about the entire Solomon Enterprise. Each one encapsulates um, the Solomon Enterprise um, quite brilliantly. So, Joy, I want to thank you so much for joining me today and for sharing your expertise and insights with, with me and with our listeners. Um, you can check out our website, uh, fmep.org, for links to Drawer and his work and some of the resources we discussed today. And I want to remind people, subscribe to the podcast. Uh, you can get Occupied Thoughts on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. That way you won't miss any of the great content that we're posting, which is coming out pretty much every week. And with that, I'm Lara Friedman, president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace, uh, thanking Droy Etkes from Karen Avod and signing off until the next episode of Occupied Thoughts. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Take care.